0: Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Ravlik and thank you for joining me. One of the things that people have noticed in the streets of Melbourne and certainly streets of Sydney is a greater wearing of masks of various kinds, colours, sophistication and robustness in terms of um, their medical uh, uh, strength in in fighting or uh, protecting people from from bugs, from dust, etc. What we're seeing out on the streets is something very different to what's happening with frontline workers in hospitals and how people uh, in the frontline are actually coping with, dealing with uh, personal protective equipment that may not be adequate for what they're doing at the moment in the work they do in relation to treating people with coronavirus. One of the people who's able to explain this to us uh, better uh, is David Clark, who's the CEO of the Australian Institute of Health and Safety. David will take us through some of the challenges and explain why some people may not be properly equipped at the moment to handle what is a very infectious environment. David, thanks for joining me. Hi, Tom. Now, before we go into the subject matter that we're tackling being, you know, what are the what protective equipment people ought to be having as opposed to what they've got now, what does the Australian Institute of Health and Safety do?
1: Well, the Australian Institute of Health and Safety is the national professional association for people who work in health and safety roles. Their job is to support people in the workplace to stay healthy and safe. There's quite a few thousand people who do that as a as a career, uh, we have industries where you have particularly high risks in the way people inter- interact uh, in their workplace. Uh, mining, resources, energy are just some examples where um, you know the risk to workers can be quite significant. Um, and in order to manage that risk and make sure businesses run properly uh, and protect workers and their health and safety, it reduce the amount of injuries that occur, prevent workplace deaths. Uh, is that health and safety people develop programs and activities and work with the business to stay profitable, stay functional and stay healthy and safe. So our work is in supporting uh, the development of the profession, uh, making sure that the work is done based on good science, good evidence, good psychology, uh, and that uh, help the health and safety profession gives the best possible advice to business to ensure that people don't get hurt or killed in the workplace, and you know the truth is that we we have uh, you know three deaths every week in Australian workplaces, three you know approximately three times every week somebody in in Australia in this country goes to work and doesn't come home. A lot of the time those deaths are preventable, and uh, we do what we can to contribute to stopping those deaths.
0: David, it just out of interest. I mean, I've got a history in professional organisations. I've worked in a couple of accounting bodies and very familiar with professional development and qualifications and then what people uh, require to be members. Have you got any minimum requirement for membership uh, or is this, a, <coughs> is, this based on, is this based on job function?
1: Well, it's an interesting you ask that question. Right now in Australia, we have a field of endeavour, workplace health and safety, where the workers are actually involved in a professional activity, where the health, well-being, and even the lives of other workers are potentially in their hands, even if indirectly. One might assume that, in a situation like that, uh, we would have a profession that's well regulated, and that there are actually very specific and important minimum requirements that are mandated by government for people to work in the field. Unfortunately, there aren't. Um, Within the law, workplace health and safety laws do say that businesses need to get their advice from suitably qualified people, but they don't define what that is. Um, The Institute's got a membership where we require people to sign on to an ethics declaration. (coughs) Excuse me. But more recently, um, we've introduced an international standard certification framework for the health and safety profession so that people meet minimum education and experience requirements to achieve a certification as a health and safety practitioner or professional. We think that's particularly important, but it's a work in progress. And uh, so what I would would probably say is, unlike engineers, lawyers and the like, uh, and accountants where you have very strong certification frameworks, we are still an adolescent profession in some ways and we've got a little bit a little way to go there. It's not something we're happy about, but it's the case. Um, there are different also different levels of health and safety work that we have to take into account because unlike the occupations I described, you can find health and safety practitioners working at baseline levels within companies focusing on compliance and, you know, people following the rules to make sure they stay healthy and safe. All the way up into people who are responsible for engaging with businesses with tens of thousands of employees, um, and dealing with organisational culture and the overall way that the business responds and its overall attitude towards the health and safety of its employers That has a big impact and a big flow through impact on on incidents and, acti- and accidents within within the business. So um, it's really really important that. Uh, we're able to uh, ensure that people are suitably qualified at all of those different levels within the company, whether they're a practitioner or a junior manager or a senior manager or even at an executive level within larger companies, but they have that health and safety responsibility. That certification program is there. It's currently voluntary. It's expanding very rapidly, but we really do need to look as a country at, uh, at regulating the people who are involved in health and safety practice and I'm aware that in some states and territories that's going on right now.
0: Well, at a very base level, most workplaces will have at least one, if not more, of a couple of people that are trained in first aid uh, and others to trained in first aid, plus you know, some additional sort of CPR type stuff. But you're talking about a formalisation of a professional... Uh, qualification, whether it's like a VET course, you know, a, a certificate in X, Y and Z. Well, uh, we're
1: in, related. In, a, in, a, in Australia, Tom, we do have Certificate 4 in Workplace Health and Safety. We have Diploma of Workplace Health and Safety yep. and Advanced Diploma of Workplace Health and Safety. That's the VET level training. They go to Certificates 4, 5 and 6. Certificate 7 in this country within the Australian Qualifications Framework is a Bachelor degree. 8 is a Postgraduate degree. 9 is a Master's. We also oh. have uh, around uh, 25 courses throughout Australia, which are either degrees in occupational health and safety, graduate certificates or graduate diplomas in occupational health and safety, and some masters in, in occupational health and safety. So those that education framework exists. What we don't have is a formal requirement that if you're running a business yeah. with 300 employees in a high-risk environment, you have to employ somebody with those specific qualifications, and that's where the
0: yeah, gap is. Okay. Yeah, that's part of the uh, that's part of the tie to the, the formal training, whether it's in the TAFE sector, vet sector, or or the, you know, the university degree space. Yeah. Now, if, if we can pivot to what we're dealing with right now in terms of health and safety issues with COVID, there's some controversy uh, about the quality of. Uh, personal protective equipment uh, for people that are dealing with uh, individuals with COVID in different contexts.
1: What are the concerns you've got there? Well, you touched on the masks. This is um, there's, there's not a simple way to talk about this in some ways, Tom. Masks are a bit of a complicated story. Um, you know, the professionals call them respirators. But the public thinks a respirator is something somebody's plugged into in a hospital if they're extremely ill. Um, okay. but the, the face masks come in many, many different forms, um, and they serve many, many different purposes. First, first of all, from a public perspective, it's really, really important that we all understand that right now, to assist in stopping the spread of COVID nineteen, particularly where there is known to be the presence of the virus undetected, um, that people wear face masks, and those face masks are ideally, you know, they can be cloth masks and they can potentially be multi-layered cloth masks with very fine weave. What that stops is that stops the aerosol production of um, when you're breathing or coughing. Um, It stops the spread of little drops of um, saliva that can potentially carry the virus if somebody is COVID positive. I will point out that there are a significant number of people in this community and every community around the world who are asymptomatic, taking someone's temperature does not resolve the question of whether or not they have COVID-19 or whether or not they have a cough or whether or not they have a fever. Um, There are many people who can be asymptomatic at any given time, and certainly is the case in Victoria. There are people walking around who have COVID-19. They don't know it. The people around them don't know it. So the big question is, are people catching COVID-19 from them? And the answer is, well, that depends on whether or not they're practising sensible social distancing whether or not they and the people around them are wearing masks. And those masks form that important purpose. We have a whole other level of masks that people wear, um, and I'll call them what are called P2, which is the standard we apply, or N95, an American standard, for masks which are designed Commonly in workplaces, they're used when you're dealing with silica or um, other airborne contaminants that can cause dust disease or other forms of disease. Um, They're masks with a very, very high protection rate. Um, And in the case of COVID-19, the use of those masks is important, not for everybody, not for everybody at home or moving around. Um, You know, we don't need P2 or N95 masks. Um, But in what we call very high-risk environments, where people are exposed to people with COVID-19 or exposed to people who are at high risk of having COVID-19, we need the people, particularly workers and staff who are associated with with that work, to wear P2 masks and N95 masks. And right now, certainly in Victoria... That is all healthcare workers who are exposed to people in COVID-19 work um, wards, uh, to aged care workers and people who are dealing with public health situations where they're seeing large numbers of people move through the environment that they're working with, which means that there is a significant risk that some of those people will have COVID-19. For example, people who work at testing stations. You're standing there testing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Some of those people, uh, they're coming with symptoms. Some of those people, the data shows that some of those people have COVID-19. You're exposed to them. You should be wearing a P2 or N95 mask. Now, a big problem today in hospitals and healthcare, and it is, in our view, a contributing factor to why the infection rate for workers is so high in Victoria, well over 1,200 now, um, moving past 1,300 today, uh, is that healthcare standards in this country, state and federal, do not mandate the use of P2 and N95 masks in COVID wards when exposed to people with COVID-19. Since March, the expert panels and the national standards have only said that you need to wear these masks when you're involved in what they call aerosol procedures, which is when they're um, doing procedures with people around the, the throat and the and the like. Um, this is an issue because the evidence is COVID-19 is airborne. Um, it, it doesn't matter if it's just an airborne procedure. Uh, the The other issue is that The difference between protection of surgical masks, which is what people are being asked to wear, and and P2 uh, N95 masks, surgical masks do not provide the same level of protection to the wearer. They're helpful to protect the patient, and this is part of the big problem in healthcare services around the country. Infection control guidelines are very traditionally focused on the patient and not on the worker. And so we have this long-term situation where everybody in this country has a high level of confidence in our healthcare services and believes that they're providing the best quality uh, standards in the country when it comes to um, infection control. But the truth is they're not. Um, And they need to change that, and they need to change that now. We're seriously concerned about it. There's enough evidence out there uh, that tells us that um, people need that extra level of protection in hospitals and they're not getting it.
0: Um, David, what are your members telling you about the situation in terms of anxiety? Because I would imagine that individuals working in those environments where they're potentially exposed to uh, getting COVID will have heightened levels of, level of anxiety simply because they're not receiving the best quality equipment. Are you getting that sort of feedback?
1: Oh, absolutely. There's a tremendous amount of feedback. Right throughout the community, I mean, everybody will have been reading some of this feedback. Um, You know, I have extended family members who work in the medical profession, uh, including in currently in hospitals with very high rates of infection of COVID nineteen, including working on COVID wards, and uh, uh, there is a tremendous level of anxiety about that. Um, Recently, uh, there's been articles from doctors working in infected situations saying, "Can we please?" get away from this concept of doctors and nurses as heroes and simply allow them to get the protection that they need. Um, these, uh, you know, it, 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 just, it, it is simply not okay to have 1,300 health Victorian healthcare workers infected by COVID-19 um, when they're not using the optimum... PPE to have them protected. Um, the regulators need to do more work in this area. They need to go in there and they need to arguably, you know, prosecute companies as in hospitals if they're not doing the right thing and they're not properly doing everything reasonably practicable to protect workers. If you are a worker, if you're a nurse or a doctor in a healthcare environment at the moment, and you understand the infectious levels of the, of this disease and you may be going home to people who might be potentially, you know, have comorbidities and the like? You have, you're seriously considering. Well, many, many nurses and doctors in those situations, for example, have had to shut themselves off from family members with comorbidities. It's an incredibly anxious time for everybody. The least we can do. Look, it's a difficult virus for everybody. And I should say too, not all healthcare, not all healthcare settings and aged care settings aren't doing the right. thing. Thing, but the problem we have here is the standards being applied. Um, and the standards need to be set as higher to, to draw the line. Um, you know, everybody who's 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 working in these places is experiencing heightened, experiencing heightened anxiety. It's a real mental health challenge. Um, and in fact, you know, a whole community through COVID-19 is experiencing the same mental health challenge. I'm sitting here at home speaking to you. I have a small staff team myself. Um, I've got staff members at home with young families um, going through tremendous challenges, trying to juggle work and family life working remotely from home. They're just part of a whole population of people, not only in Australia but from around the world, who, who are trying to cope with and adjust to all of this. The mental health issues and what we call so, the, you know, the, the, the psychological uh, health and safety um, and the risks associated with the current environment to people the mental health risks are really significant and um unfortunately we're going to have some really negative outcomes of that over time um, you know you can look at data about that um, and you can hear about the human cost the human cost is pretty clear um, and uh, of course there's terrible anxiety in in hospitals and aged care amongst staff who, who know what the risks are and don't like being exposed to them.
0: One of the things you mentioned earlier, David, was uh, the whole need to improve the, the, the requirements for, for you know, PPE in hospitals, that is up the ante in terms of the level of protection required. What are the... Uh, To whom do you have to engage in advocacy? With whom, rather? Do you engage in advocacy to get uh, those guidelines changed?
1: Well, there are standards, but there are relevant standards bodies. It's essentially the State Departments of Health um, and the Federal Department of Health can take immediate action and resolve this issue. Um, The question is around their will to do that. My concern is... As we've just heard from the acting chief medical officer federally, we heard yesterday the acting, uh, sorry, the deputy chief medical officer, federal chief medical Mm -hmm. officer, making the statement that the expert panel that they're advised by uh, has continued to reassert since March that P2 and N95 masks are not needed in COVID wards unless they're associated with aerosol procedures. So... The frank truth of it is, we don't agree with that assessment from that panel. We recognise and respect that they formed an expert panel. Uh, the, the only I, I'm I'm not privy to the thinking of that of that expert panel, but I am privy to the current evidence around the protective nature of surgical masks versus P2 and N95. I'm privy to the current standards. Not being of a standard that tell people that mandate that use and that the expert panel are supporting those standards. I'm privy to the fact that in March the New South Wales standard was reviewed and one of the contributing factors to its failure to be upgraded was concern about the availability of masks. And the availability of a certain kind of PPE should never be an indicative factor in the setting of a standard and uh, that's an extreme concern. Um, I'm privy to the evidence that's now emerged around the airborne nature of the virus. Um, You you put all these things together. Um, We've got a a list your arm long of occupational hygienists who understand uh, the use of masks um, incredibly well, as as good as anybody in the world, um, and have been working on protecting workers from airborne contaminants and biological hazards you know, for for their for their whole careers, and uh, they're not present on those on those expert panels. They're medically focused um, expert panels, which is fine. Uh, but my concern is that possibly, uh, again, they're focusing on disease control in a traditional medical context, which is not focused on the workers' protection. Potentially focused on the patient's protection, and they're just missing missing the game there. It goes to other issues too. If you look in hospitals, there's a raft of anecdotal examples of situations right now where people are sharing pens and other, you know, clipboards and um, you know, uh, tea rooms. They're not split shifting in tea rooms and reducing risk of people cross cross exposure of staff, um, cutting down numbers of people in rooms at certain times. These are basic things that. In most industries and occupations right now, health and safety managers are absolutely in doing as basic, basic controls to reduce the risk of the spread of COVID nineteen, and we're seeing examples that these things aren't automatically being done in hospitals and aged care.
0: Um, is that a part of is it? Partly because people haven't properly appreciated the intense viral nature of COVID nineteen that they underestimated the. The the impact of of the virus in the first instance.
1: Look, I think um, all of this, you know, you've got to call out first and foremost. COVID nineteen is new. It's new for everybody. Um, yeah. It's new for the medical profession. It's new for the health and safety professionals. It's new for the community. It's 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 new. But it is a biological hazard. We're not, uh, you know, it's not like we don't have uh, a background <laughs> yeah. history of dealing with biological hazards including pandemics, and it's not like there aren't learnings from those. For me, one of the root causes of the issue that I'm talking about uh, is that hospitals have been focused on infection control instead of workplace health and safety, Uh, and workers are suffering as a result. Now, I've explained some of the distinctions around that. It's partly around the focus on protecting Patience, which is critical. It's important. It absolutely has to happen. But you've also got to look at a situation like COVID-19 from the perspective of the worker, of the healthcare worker. And, you know, we can go back and forth over uh, whether <laughs> whether or not it's an issue. We've got 1,300 uh, current healthcare workers in Victoria with COVID-19. and We know that they have not been, as a standard matter, of course, wearing P2 and N95 masks. Some hospitals are doing it because they know it's the right thing to do, but it's not the minimum standard. Um, Some of these organisations are going by what the advice is, and the advice is is not good enough. So again, it goes back to the setting of the standard. Right now, the standards being set for hospitals and aged care is not good enough, the evidence tells us it needs to be better, and so far they've resisted that.
0: The, it, it's interesting, you've, you've, you've just mentioned the concept of uh, looking at infection control um, and then the notion of looking at the these issues as workplace health and safety issues. If you conceptually treat them as workplace health and safety issues, then you're actually Providing infection control in any case? Are you not?
1: Well, yes. Um, you know, COVID nineteen is a complex thing. Um, uh, I, look, I can speak to health and safety practice. I'm I'm less capable of of speaking around medical infection control practice, and I don't want to in any way present myself as having deep knowledge of that. But I can tell you around workplace health and safety. When you're dealing with a hazard and it's a new hazard, when you when that hazard can cause death, when there are many things you don't know about that hazard, that's how you describe COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So when you yeah. do those things and you do and you risk assess, you take precautionary principles. You develop controls which assume the worst in many ways. If you're unsure about the about uh, you know how long COVID-19 will remain on a surface, and the emerging evidence is it ranges between a range. You pick the highest range, and you act as if COVID-19 exists on surfaces for that longer period of time, and you have cleaning protocols that reflect that. If when you're dealing with transmissibility and protection through masks, you take the precautionary principle. You recognise that COVID-19 is now, air, you know, is airborne. And you use masks, which give the maximum protection. Um, this is this is what's not happening, but this is how health and safety practice would dictate that you would do it.
0: It's interesting. In you've painted a, a picture uh, that that will concern some people, but we've um, in a sense pituitously concluded on something that workplaces and people at home could actually think about, and that is you adopt a higher level of risk management, uh, a higher level of proactivity, just to make sure that there's less of a risk of infection.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, you can't see COVID-19. We don't know for sure about COVID-19. You know, if in doubt, take the precaution. If in doubt, wear the mask. If in doubt, you know, stay three metres away instead of one and a half metres away. (laughs) If in doubt, avoid public spaces right now, certainly in Victoria. You know, um, each time you do that, you know, COVID, look, look, the spread of COVID-19 has got to do with proximity of people, time that they spend in each other's proximity. Yes. And hygiene. They're the three things. And when I talk about hygiene, I mean the cleaning procedures around you, the masks that you wear, the protective equipment that you wear. All of these things, if you increase time of exposure, proximity of exposure, or reduce the hygiene that you carry out, your risk of catching COVID-19 increases. That's not in itself a complicated equation. People get themselves confused over COVID-19. It's about those three things. And it's easy to get confused because, like I said, there's so many things we don't know about COVID-19. The evidence is not all that clear. And so it gets people really stressed and confused. And the way to deal with something you're unclear about is if in doubt, use the precautionary principle. Assume the worst and act in accordance with that, and you'll be best protected under the circumstances. When it comes, for example, to people who are seriously exposed and vulnerable in hospitals with comorbidities and people in aged care facilities, this is where we should be practicing the very best health care practice in the country today um, for, well, very best health and safety practice in the country today um including for for workers in those workplaces um stopping the spread of covid-19 between workers will also stop the spread of covid-19 between workers and patients
0: it's very it it, it is almost deceptively uh Simple, but it's a really good message to end on. I, I spoke to someone yesterday and I said, you might like your friends, but COVID-19 likes them just as much as you do. And uh, it got it got the message across. Uh, David, thanks so much for making time to talk me through, talk the audience through all of these issues that are very critical at this point.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks.
0: And, uh, thank you and hope we can talk again sometime
1: you... soon. Tom, if I could just add one final thing. Absolutely. If anybody's been listening to this and thinks, therefore, from their home, well, when they go out, they need to wear a P2 or N95 mask, that's not the case. We don't need the public trying to purchase P2 and N95 masks. The masks that you can um, purchase, such as surgical masks and the cloth masks, which are the layered masks, which you can make or buy, they're suitable for the environment to reduce the aerosol spread of COVID-19 and significantly reduce risks. Um, Where we need our P2 and N95 masks is in those really intensive environments of COVID wards um, and for people who have that regular contact with people who have COVID-19. That's where we need the masks and that's, that's where you should apply them. So I don't want anybody listening to this and then going out and trying to source masks that are best used in the healthcare environment.
0: David, that's actually a very, very good point. Uh, I'd been wondering about that uh, that issue myself with some of the people on posting on Facebook and Twitter. So it's a really good thing for people to uh, keep in mind. So thanks again for joining me.
1: I have a cloth mask. It's homemade. It's three layers, um, and that's what I wear.
0: Okay. <laughs> and that I think uh, that I think quite a few people I've spoken to have actually gone through the process of making them. So it's um. It is a really, really good discipline for people to get into. David, thanks thanks okay, for joining so, me. Thank you. Ta-